Well, let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for the day that You've given to us, this Christian Sabbath, that we might rest in Your goodness and Your grace. We might enjoy worship and fellowship and communion with You as well as fellowship with our fellow saints. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to do acts of service and mercy along with worship. Lord, even on this rainy day, we thank You for all that You give to us. As we come this evening, enjoying a few moments in your word, time in corporate prayer, and dinner together. May you bless us, bless us richly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. We are going to do an, have an extended application out of this morning's sermon, hit on a few things. So the, the structure of the sermon will be a little different than than usual, but I think it'll be easy to flow, um, to follow the flow. It does have seven main points, but some of the main points have no explanation. So we'll kind of move through, and I think you'll see in just a moment uh, what uh, what I'm talking about. It'll make sense for you there. So this morning we looked at the hope of the resurrection on trial from Acts 26, 1 through 11, and uh, we're going to hone in on verses 6 and 8. Uh, and take a look there at the resurrection. So if someone's listening to this online, they'll want to go back and, and uh, go to our website, come to Christ.church, and listen to the sermon from this morning. I think that'll give uh, some good context for them to, to seat this sermon in as well, as it's an application out of that. Well, we know from Ephesians 2.8, uh, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, uh, it is the gift of God. And then when we go to Hebrews chapter 11, that chapter that deals with faith, and we see uh, kind of that hall of heroes, um, those whom the Lord has called, uh, those whom the Lord has used in mighty ways in the church, we see there. But in verse 1 we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So I say that, that uh, hopefully it will help us. To have a good grounding here. God saves sinners. God is the one who saves us. God gives us faith. But God doesn't give us a faith with an expectation that we would believe in it like we do. Uh, I don't know. What's something crazy like uh, Tooth Fairy? So that we might believe in it and hope that the Tooth Fairy is there and bringing us wonderful things whenever we lose teeth. But God gives us a faith that's rooted uh, in reality. And as we saw this morning, we touched on just briefly, rooted in great evidence, um, as has been revealed in his word and in history. So, Acts 26, let's read verse 6 through 8, so we can get our grounding here. Paul's in the middle of uh, beginning this defense before King Agrippa, and he's, he's kind of giving his credentials, as I mentioned this morning, laying out that uh, he is worthy to be one. Uh, to work through uh, the hope of the resurrection and the connections from the old covenant prophecies into the new covenant reality that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Messiah, uh, that he did die for the sins of his people and, and rose three days later. So he lays that out, and in the midst of it, he makes it clear as he's kind of doing this evangelistic thrust to King Agrippa and all the dignitaries uh, that are there why he's on trial. So we start in verse 6. Uh, as Paul says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship night and day, 
And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So that's what we're going to look at, the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might then think truly, why is it thought incredible that God raises the dead? Particularly when we know God can do all things, starting with creating all time, space, this universe, by speaking it into existence, uh, but also we see throughout the scriptures and historical fact uh, that God does uh, and did this. The Lord Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. Now, children, the adults in the room can confirm to y'all um, that it's just, it's just best to always tell the truth. When you lie, lies find you out. They just have a way. It's almost like a lie is an air bubble the bottom of a cup, it's going to make, it's going to pop up and go to the top. It, it's not going to stay down there as much as you want it to. Your lie is going to be found out and it's going to be seen. So in the same sense, uh, you know, when we see big lies, when we see conspiracies, when we see people trying to cover things up, uh, sometimes the smaller they are, the longer lies can go on, but they come out eventually. But when lies are like grand, Big things. They don't last very long. Particularly when we start getting a lot of people involved. They break down quickly. And I want us to think about that because what we're, what we're asked to believe by many unbelievers, non-Christians, is that for 2,000 years that the church has perpetuated a lie and has held this lie together that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's the God-man. 2,000 years. We're living in a day where, where lies on a large level get uncovered quickly. And to think that something like this, as important as this, could be covered up for 2,000 years is, is quite mind-boggling. So as we go through these things, what I want us to keep in mind is Jesus rose from the dead just as he said he would and as the Bible prophesied. So we're going to look at uh, several historical evidences that prove Jesus rose from the dead. And as I mentioned, some of these we'll expand on. Some of these I'm just going to, boom, hit the point and we'll move on. And I'm not going to hit on everything. So we'll get to the end and don't think, oh, those, those are the seven. There, there are more. But these are the seven I think that will be helpful for us to go through, think about, as we extend an application from this morning's uh, sermon, the hope of the resurrection on trial. So the first of these I want us uh, to look at is the gospel resurrection accounts themselves. Those are important for us to keep in mind. Matthew, Mark, and John are written by eyewitnesses. And then Luke is written uh, as a, like a historian. who Luke goes and he interviews eyewitnesses. And compiling all these interviews of eyewitnesses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us Luke and then Acts as we've been working through Sunday mornings, uh, so Luke acts there. So the, the gospel accounts themselves, the, uh, these uh, gospels that are written under the inspiration of the, the Holy Spirit testify to the reality and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, all these books were written in a time period that someone could have or a group of people could have said, hey, I was there, um, that didn't happen. It was also written in a time period where people could go to some folks and say, hey, you were there. Did that really happen? And so there was an aspect of like something, imagine some massive, crazy, wonderful event happened here in Knoxville this year. 
well, you know, sometime in the next six months, year, maybe even five years, we could go find some people that might have been there, seen it, been part of it. And we could ask them, like, hey, what's the real story? I mean, we're hearing all this stuff about it, but, but did that happen? Or a bunch of people could just say, hey, that didn't really happen. It was a joke. It was a prank. So we've got a time frame where these writers writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's folks alive who can testify to it, who saw it with their own eyes, uh, or could debunk it, which looking at how upset the religious Jewish leaders are and the civil Roman authorities are beginning to get because they're tired of the, the rabble getting upset, you would think there'd be a lot of folks who really would like to debunk it and do what needed to be done to, to put an end to this growing, uh, what they refer to as a sect, but it is the way it is Christianity, uh, the religion, the uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church that is growing uh, quickly and expanding. Uh, the Bible is, you know, we're, I bring up the Gospels, but uh, not just the Gospels, but the Bible itself. The Bible is the most uh, reliable and accurate ancient document we have. Now, granted, it's multiple books brought together into one, but the Bible itself, there's nothing like it. You can talk to historians, you can look at this, folks who study ancient text, and everyone's in agreement. There is nothing like the Bible. Um, Historians generally use like three different uh, ways to assess the accuracy, the reliability of an ancient document. And so they ask these three questions. Um, historians will, will ask, uh, how old are the oldest copies of the original documents? You say, well, hold on, why aren't they asking about the original? Well, you go back so far, no original documents, they, they make it, unless they were written on stone or some form of metal. If it was written on any type of you know, papyrus or animal skin, Unless something providentially strange happens, uh, it, they don't last over time. They just, you know, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 4,000 years of documents, uh, you lose the, the originals. But they do ask, how old are the oldest copies of the original documents? Then they ask, how much time is there between the original and the first copies? So how much time was there before, between when we know the original was written and then we had the oldest copies of that? Is that a little space? Is it a huge space? What is it? And then the third they ask is how many copies of the document have we found? If we find one copy, well, it's not very reliable. Um, find two copies. Now we can compare the two. And you can say, oh, interesting. If you have ten copies, now you're getting in a good place. This is where historians are excited. Ten copies that they could compare of something. And they could see, looking at the way uh, the copiers had done it, and they could say, okay, this is what we think the original manuscript of whatever the ancient document was is. So those are three questions. Um, just to give you a quick example, this is one of those uh, points we're unpacking more than the others. Uh, Christianity Explored. Uh, Christianity Explored is a, something we've used and we'll use some more. Uh, it's a great little course. Um, Folks can go to and just as it sounds like, explore Christianity, and they can learn more about the gospel, more about Christianity. Uh, they supply this kind of helpful chart uh, in their their book that they hand out, uh, dealing with ancient documents. So I've got uh, I'm going to give you just four documents, so we don't get too crazy. I'm going to give you the date they were written, the date of the oldest copy, the time between the original and the copy, and then the number of ancient copies. So hitting on those questions that they use. So I'm trying to move quick so we don't get lost, but just try to stay with me. All right, uh, 
Theocidus, History of the Peloponnesian Wars, was written sometime between 431 and 400 BC, so 2,400 years ago. So it was a while ago. The oldest copy uh, that, that we have is 900 AD, so that's 1,300 years between the oldest copy and uh, the complete uh, copy they have. Now, they do have some first century fragments, but a whole copy, 900 AD, 1,300 years later, and they have 73 copies. That's pretty good, 73 copies. Out of 73, you can determine what the original was like. Then we have Caesar's uh, Gaelic Wars, written 58, 50 BC. Um, the oldest copy we have is from 825 AD. So again, we're about you know, 900 years-ish uh, time frame between the original and the, the copy in that, in that neighborhood. And there's 10 copies of that. Um, Tacitus Histories and Annals uh, was written around 9808 A.D., um, right at the end of the first century there. Uh, oldest copy that we have as humanity is 850 A.D. So we got about 750-year time frame between the oldest to the copy. And there's two of those. So we're a little... We drop down. Now, these are three ancient documents that are held pretty highly and esteemed by uh, historians. So then we come to the whole, I'm just going to deal with the New Testament since we're talking about the resurrection. So we'll set aside the, the Old Testament for another time, but just the whole New Testament, including the Gospels. Uh, written sometime between 440 and 100 AD. And the oldest copies we have were written about 350 AD. So there's about 310 year difference from the originals to the first copies. Um, that's, not, that's the best so far. Uh, that's the best of any ancient manuscripts. And then we come to the number of these copies. Uh, so you remember we had 73, 10, and 2 of the whole New Testament, including the Gospels, all these things together, we've got about 14,000 copies. Pretty good. You, I mean, you can determine what the originals were like with that. 5,000 were Greek, 8,000 were, were Latin, and about 1,000 other in, in various languages. So I know I dove down deep into that one, but I'd I think it's helpful for us as we move to any of the others to see the reliability of the Scripture. So when we say the Gospels, that is an account of the resurrection of Christ. We're not just saying this is the opinion of some Christians who wrote this 500 years later. What we're saying is these are eyewitness accounts that are credible of the resurrection of Christ. Credible in the sense that this was, would be like evidence that could be used without a doubt. So God's Word, not... Surprisingly to a Christian, uh, is accurate, true, it's inspired uh, by God. But for someone who's, who's skeptical or learning or looking at these things, hopefully they can even see the way that uh, these ancient documents work and the way we address them, that the, the New Testament and the Gospel accounts, um, very reliable, very reliable that we can hold on to. Uh, particularly John. John writes a historical account in his Gospel, uh, gospel according to John, and that's a big deal because he writes a historical account for his gospel, and yet John also is who the, the Holy Spirit used to write Revelation, which is an apocalyptic, a lot of allegory, a lot of metaphor. Well, John knows the difference. It's clear between the two. We are given historical narrative in his gospel. It's not something that can be written away as, oh, well, this, this resurrection was just a, a metaphor for something that happened. No, John knew the difference between narrative and metaphor, and it shows just right there. All right, so moving, moving past the, uh, the text themselves, the next thing for us to keep in mind, or I want you all to think about, uh, to consider is the empty tomb. 
the empty tomb. The fact that they came where Jesus was laid, and he was not there the next day uh, when they came uh, to get him there on the beginning of Sunday morning, that first day of, of the week. Uh, textual evidence, historical evidence show tomb was empty. Uh, there was Roman guards, Roman seal. That was a big deal. Soldiers wouldn't just you know, let something that they were given uh, protection over. They wouldn't just let it go for any reason that they didn't find uh, important. I don't think that uh, Roman soldiers, from what we read of history, uh, would be doing the bidding of the religious Jewish leaders or a bunch of um, rabble that at that point were seen as enemies of the state and enemies of the land that they were controlling. Uh, So reliable, something happened, they were gone. The Roman soldiers that were there were not able uh, to stop it but testify to the fact it happened. Um, Also, Jesus' burial clothes were left behind. If you remember, uh, there was a process going on. They were coming back to complete it. They wanted to uh, anoint Christ's body. They wanted to put the spices and the different ointments and oils and different things on it. Very expensive things, spices, and elements were put on him. The clothes were left behind. So if somebody was robbing or stealing or doing something of that nature, they left everything of value in the tomb. It doesn't make much sense. So we probably wasn't a grave robber. You know, there's weird theories that people try to push that maybe Jesus passed out, woke up, pushed the big rock out of the way, and then stumbled off and disappeared. And that's, again, we can get into all kind of silly explanations that people give Uh, but the reality is history shows the new testament the gospel accounts that we've shown are reliable speak to an empty tomb Uh, next point many eyewitnesses to jesus resurrection were willing to be martyred for the truth of christ's resurrection now a person might be willing to die for a lie they've been told So you could be told something false and hold on to that and be like, this is real, and be willing to go and die for it. But it's a whole other thing to be tortured and killed for something that you know if it's real or if it's a lie. I mean, you know that. And you're not really gaining anything by dying for it. And all you have to say is, yes, I lied. I exaggerated. I got kind of carried away. That didn't happen. That's all you got to say. And then you don't have to die a terrible death and a death that you're not gaining anything from to die. So again, there may be some who will die for a lie, but very few people will die for a lie that they know because they were directly involved with the original person that was telling the lie. Those are kind of typically the people that go send other people to die for them, sadly. So these eyewitnesses... um, Think about Peter. He's a good example. Peter, what happened on, what are the accounts in the Gospels on the night that Jesus was arrested and Peter goes because he wants to see what's happening and then people that are there start asking questions. They're like, hey, hey, aren't you, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? Y'all remember what Peter, Peter did? Jesus said it was going to happen and then Peter did it. Three times he denied him. He said, I don't know who this guy is. don't know nothing about him. Leave me alone. Ran away, scared. He was going to get hurt. Something was going to happen to him. And yet this same Peter, we turn right around. And what is it when we move through Acts? Who is it that the Lord is using in the beginning of Acts? Who is standing up in the very middle 
of Jerusalem at the temple proclaiming the gospel and the fact that Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He died for the sins of his people. He resurrected. And who was it that was proclaiming that in a place that he could easily be killed immediately? It was Peter. Now that that radical transformation uh, is something that I think only the Holy Spirit could have done. Um, And we see that clearly testified to us in the scriptures and we talked about uh, the scriptures uh, already. Now something we've also seen Uh, in Acts, perhaps you picked up on this when we were in Acts in the early portions of Acts, but what happens, I mean, almost immediately we see uh, within a few weeks right after the resurrection, where is it that a a explosion happens of folks coming to faith? Where is it that Pentecost takes place? Where is it that all these people are claiming Repenting and claiming belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's right in Jerusalem, right in the very place where all this happened. So if there was, there was anywhere that it would be the easiest to say, this is not reality, this didn't happen, it would be right there at the spot in Jerusalem. And yet that was the epicenter where all of the folks were coming to faith and the Spirit was working right there at the most, uh, the easiest place where you might be able to, if this was a lie, to disprove it, to move ahead, squash it, and yet we see the exact opposite happen, not only documented in the scriptures, but in history itself. Uh, we see the church exploding out of uh, Jerusalem. And then we see, documented in the scriptures, Jesus appears about a dozen times. And this isn't including Paul. So he does appear to Paul, we know from Paul's accounts there in Luke. So he appears to Paul uh, on the road, and that's when uh, Paul is converted from Saul to Paul. Uh, the Lord, Lord calls him, it's Christ who confronts him. And then you'll remember not too many Sundays ago, Paul's in the prison cell and it's Jesus who comes. And Jesus says, hey, um, Paul, you're going to be okay because you are going to Rome to witness me and you're going to make it. And he reassured him. And that was Christ peering to him again. But before that, but other than, other than uh, Paul, there's about a dozen times we see in, in the scriptures. I'm going to start off with what we see first and kind of move our way. I'm just going to give you like in a sentence of it with a place that you can go find and read about yourself. So Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Uh, you can go read that in Mark 16, John 20. And then Jesus appears to, uh, um, hope I pronounced his name right, Salome and Mary, the mother of James, who who seemed to be from the account right behind Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene was ahead of them. She must have been a little more focused on getting there. They come right, show up behind her, and Jesus appears to them as well. We read that in Matthew 28 in the beginning of that chapter. Uh, then Jesus appears to Peter. We read that in Luke 24. Uh, then Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Again, we're in Luke 24. Uh, Then Jesus appears to the apostles, except Thomas is not there, and that's on a Sunday evening when they're gathered together in the room, and Christ appears amongst them. Uh, You can read about that in Luke 24 and in in John 20. And then the next Sunday evening, they're together, and Thomas is there, because they they told him what he missed. And so, you know, I'm sure Thomas had some some major FOMO, like, man, Jesus showed up last Sunday, I'm going to be there this Sunday. Thomas is there. And then he, with the other apostles, see Christ uh, as well. Jesus appears to them, Luke 24, um, excuse me, John 20. John 20 is where you go to read that. 
Then Jesus appears to several of the apostles on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, John 21. Uh, Jesus appears in, in, uh, and gave the apostles uh, the Great Commission, the church's mission there in Matthew 28, recorded in, in Mark uh, 16 as well. Uh, and then Jesus appears to over 500 Christians, including Peter. We read, uh, we read that this morning, 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 there. So that's Jesus appearing to several hundred people. So we really are broadening it now to the amount of people who are seeing uh, Jesus. And then Jesus appears to his brother James. We read about that also in 1 uh, Corinthians 15. Perhaps Jesus appearing to his brother Letting the family know, hey, everything is true. It's all real. But he appears to his brother. And then after appearing to James, Jesus uh, appeared and ate a meal with the apostles. We see that in Acts 1, Luke 24. And then the last time that Jesus appears um, to the apostles is at, is at his ascension to heaven. Again, Acts 1, Mark 16, Luke 24, we can read about uh, those things. So we have appearances of Christ, over a dozen. We have eyewitnesses. Uh, we're in the hundreds, so well over 500 eyewitnesses. Take that back to what we talked about, about the reliability of the texts, the scriptures. So put those together. So that means if the scriptures are reliable, then that we have these eyewitness accounts that have been proven and shown to be uh, reliable. And then, we don't have time this evening, but we've been touching on this in different places. But just think about the Old Testament prophecies, all the prophecies about uh, the Messiah, and the ones particularly, we talked about this morning, some of them, but the ones in the Old Testament uh, that point to the reality that not only is the Messiah coming, not only is he the God-man, that he would, but that he would also die for the sins of his people and then rise from the dead. So we have these Old Testament prophecies given, and then they come true, uh, not to mention uh, also the fact that uh, Jesus teaches and tells everybody, hey, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die for the sins of my people, and then I'm going to rise again. And you remember the, the apostles and the disciples, as they're hearing it, they're like, hey, well, they don't get it. Stop talking like that. But yet, the exact thing happens that Jesus said was going to happen. And then one thing, perhaps you haven't thought about this. This will be the last point to bring, is uh, think about the new day of Christian worship, the Lord's Day. That transition we see in the New Testament, where it was uh, amongst the Jewish and Gentile Christians, but what a big deal it was for Jewish Christians to shift the Sabbath from celebrating the Sabbath on the day that God rested from creation to then celebrating the Sabbath on the day that Christ rested from his work of redemption, resurrection. And for a, for a Jewish Christian, um, I mean, I don't think we fully grasp the importance of the Sabbath, uh, particularly to the old covenant Jews. Um, but it was huge. It was a big deal. And yet we see this shift in the scriptures clearly done. I mean, Jesus meets with the apostles on Sundays. Uh, then we see the pattern of worship on Sundays. We see in uh, John writing in, the Re in Revelation, he speaks of uh, the vision coming to him on the Lord's day as he's there at Patmos. Uh, so there's a shift. Um, the entire um, movement of uh, what day, what day in seven, uh, is given for Sabbath, shifts from Saturday to Sunday. And I don't think that we should miss that because it's directly tied to the resurrection uh, of Christ. So as I said in the beginning, there are more. These are just a few. We're, just, we're expanding the application here from the sermon 
this morning. There's, there's other things we can look at, but these are just a few uh, to encourage you uh, to see the reality and the truth and the evidence that comes behind uh, our faith. Even as we, you know, we read earlier out of Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Yes, it's the gift of God. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives faith. But praise the Lord, God doesn't, doesn't give us a faith uh, that can be ripped to shreds, as it were. Instead, we have the scriptures. We have the reality. The resurrection is a, a very real, uh, reliable, proven reality, historical event. And it is one uh, that we, as Christians, rejoice in. It is one that those who are not Christians, who are, who are skeptics or doubting, must wrestle with the reality of this event and what they're going to do with it. Uh, but it is, God willing, hopefully something that we've uh, expanded on a little bit tonight uh, and will be uh, blessed by as we prayerfully think through. Jesus rose from the dead just as he said he would and as the Bible prophesied. All right, we'll conclude uh, in prayer as we enter into our corporate uh, prayer time now.